Today's episode is brought to you by Cleo Chan's Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go, a collection of electric, unsettling, and often surreal stories that explore the alienated, technology-mediated lives of restless Asian and Asian-American women today, says Raven Leilani. Let's go, let's go, let's go is sharp and unprecious about the sticky aspects of having flesh. This collection is riddled with outsiders of different shades, of people who stand back from their realities with secret and burning questions. Ling Ma calls the collection perfectly askew and adds, the stories in Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go thrum with restless questioning and acute longing, shot through with a tart, knowing sense of humor. It seemed to vibrate in my hands as I read it. Let's Go, Let's Go, Let's Go is out now from Tin House. I'm realizing that for me, there is a particular appeal to be learning two things at once in preparing for an episode. Sometimes the second thing is historical, such as the history of Palestinian theater with Isabella Hamad, or something philosophical, looking at various feminist positions on the portrayal of consent in the Verhoeven film L, starring Isabelle Huppert, when I talked to Chelsea Hodson. And then sometimes it's the pleasure of exploring the work of another artist while also exploring the work of the upcoming guest, doing a deep dive into Pessoa's poetry in anticipation of talking with James Hanahan, and with today's guest, Joanna Novak, exploring the singular life, paintings, and writings of the abstract expressionist Agnes Martin, an artist whose writings and paintings influence a writing regimen and retreat that Novak constructs for herself, a regimen that produces the first draft of the book that we discussed today. Because of this, today is a deep dive into Novak's writing life, a writer who writes in all three genres, as well as her writing techniques, alongside the writing and painting life of the person who inspired her during her pregnancy and her struggles with prenatal depression, Agnes Martin. Today's conversation is about memoir, but it's also about poetry and about visual art. It is a conversation that may at one point be about mental illness or eating disorders, and at another about positive freedom and inner perfection. It is a conversation much like the book that is full of generative contradictions. For the bonus audio, Joanna reads the odd and funny children's book, Mr. Rabbit and the Lovely Present, which is a favorite of her four-year-old son. The ever-growing bonus audio is only one of many possible benefits of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. There's also the Tin House Early Readership subscription, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public rare collectibles from past guests, and a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. But every supporter 
can join our brainstorm of future guests and every listener supporter gets the resource rich email with each episode. In this case, all the Agnes Martin and Joanna Novak material I either explored in preparation for today or that we explored together when we talked. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Joanna Novak. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Joanna Novak, earned a BA in creative writing from Knox College, an MFA in fiction from Washington University in St. Louis, and an MFA in poetry from University of Massachusetts, Amherst. She's also the co-founder of the literary journal and chapbook publisher, Tammy, who have published many great writers, including past Between the Covers guests, Brian Evanson, Sarah Gerard, Diane Williams, and Rosemary Waldrop. Up until now, Novak's books have, like her two MFA pursuits, been either fiction or poetry. She is the author of the novel, I Must Have You, of which Sarah Gerard says, Novak's characters hurtle toward the painful pleasure of self-destruction uninterested in stopping themselves, determined to find the next prick to make them feel alive. It's a visceral process like picking off a scab, a necessary book. Her next two books were poetry, the book-length poem Noir Mania, described by Johannes Jorensen as part hellish fashion shoot, part necro-glamorous memoir, part grotesque diorama. Noir Mania explores the politics of the female body with a no-holds-barred intensity. Dara Weir says of her second poetry collection, Abeyance North America, Maybe what Novak offers is an ink-sputtered, blood-marked, chewed, dog-soothed, mutter-fluffed, shoe-board, convertible couch on which to lie around and dream up seeking and satisfying appetites. And Sandra Simons adds, where is desire located? Is the body a ledge, a bookshelf, a devil, an animal? Like Bart's A Lover's Discourse, these poems invite us to understand that the erotic is frantic, pulled in multiple directions, 
that it doesn't know if it wants to climb a 40-foot date palm or soak in a hotel's hot tub. But perhaps like language itself, in the end, desire has no true home, and in order for it to stay alive, it has to keep moving, and these poems give us beautiful glimpses of that movement. Novak's 2021 follow-up, her debut short story collection, Meaningful Work, won the 2020 Ronald Sukunik Innovative Fiction Contest. Devouring, yearning, erasing, grabbing, says Amy Bender. These stories pulse with intensity, and Novak's scalpel, precise prose cuts to the core again and again. A startling and exciting collection that does not shirk from pretty much anything. Joanna Rocco adds, in meaningful work, Joanna Novak shows us what this world makes us swallow. Shit jobs and hostess snowballs, the nuclear family, our own fulvous tongues. Language glutted, her starveling girls and hollowed mothers gag on everything and nothing. Novak spreads it, a mangled smorgasbord of harms. This is a book of jagged mouthfuls, of candy shell sentences with hot, gloppy cores. There's no purging it. Read and the stories stay with you, like cuts rubbed with Sharpie in the fat of your heart. Her third poetry book, New Life, came out shortly after, with Sabrina Oramark asking, Am I reading poems, I wonder, or am I reading their glorious bones? Here what nourishes is what captures. Reading Novak is like eating a mousetrap sandwich on the edge of rapture. And Joyelle McSweeney adds, New Life is an exquisitely rendered, naughty book, a tipsy affair of pregnancy poems, in which each poem tips ever closer to its tipping point. The plane has crashed in the mountain. The ferry approaches and never arrives, and yet our speaker finds herself again and again in a series of glamorously induced isolations, each as vivid and pleasing as a sonnet or a handbag close to hand, clasping and unclasping, and containing many choice illicit terms. Here splendor and captivity are indistinguishable, and everything can be described, embroidered, adored, cut close. But what's in the next room, the next trimester? What's that up there behind the sky? As if that were not enough, this largesse of books across fiction and poetry, Novak has also written creative nonfiction for many years, her work appearing everywhere from the Paris Review to the New York Times to the Atlantic to the New Yorker. And her essay, My $1,000 Anxiety Attack, was anthologized in About Us, essays from the disability series of the New York Times. We are thus lucky to have her here today for her debut book of nonfiction, her memoir from Catapult called Contradiction Days, An Artist on the Verge of Motherhood, a memoir, according to Lindsay Hunter, that unfolds like a thriller a taut, explosive self-examination from an artist trying to simultaneously forget and remember her body. There is a sunbright truth heating every page. 
as a writer, as a mother, I inhaled this quest for a knowledge that doesn't consume, but reveals. And finally, Danzi Senna says, Contradiction Days is that startling and rebellious work we see too rarely, a portrait of the female artist, pregnant with a baby and ambition, with rage and desire, who remains preoccupied by questions of philosophy, aesthetics, and abstraction as her body grows. Novak's writing in these pages is as sublime, precise, and arresting as the Agnes Martin paintings that transfix her. Welcome to Between the Covers, Joanna Novak. Thank you for having me, David Naiman. <laughs> um, so Contradiction Days, not as a primary focus, but a, among many other things, is the contention with a way your body is changing like it never has before with your pregnancy. But your body is also a longstanding focus in your work. In an essay that you wrote for LitHub called On the Literature of Eating Disorders, you say, because I've lived with some permutation of an eating disorder since 1998, roughly as long as I've identified as a writer, some of my work deals with explicitly or implicitly the body, its hunger, its satiation, its habits, its weights, its expansion and contraction, its bones and its fat, its movement or stalling in space, food too, and clothes, and exercise, and the bodies of other women. Your latest book opens with you pregnant, your body radically changing because of it, and you trying to find your moorings emotionally, not wanting to have a pregnant body, and sometimes wanting to forget that you have a baby on the way, on the one hand, but on the other, also trying to find a framing with which to usher in this new, never-before-experienced life, one that won't just be body-altering, but also irrevocably life-altering. And the framing you find is the art and writing of the painter Agnes Martin, who inspires this intensive, self-directed pilgrimage and writing retreat in New Mexico where she lived and where this book was written. So given that you juxtapose the beginnings of your writing life with the beginnings of your issues around eating, I was hoping you'd speak to us about this pairing also of the connection between the solitary artist Agnes Martin and you being on the verge of motherhood. Or in other words, I think it's easy to imagine how pregnancy-induced body changes intersect with these themes that you listed in the Lit Hub essay, but how and why did Agnes Martin become the artist and figure you felt like was, if, if not the remedy for your fears and anxieties, perhaps an organizing principle for a way to move forward? Why was she the artist that most seduced you at this time on the verge of this transformation? I think that I felt very cluttered as I embarked on my self-designed experiment, cluttered emotionally, cluttered physically, cluttered psychologically. And I've been feeling that way throughout my pregnancy. 
I'd been feeling really aware of the constellation of feelings that seemed to be ever present and maybe intensifying. And Agnes Martin's writing before I'd even seen a single painting of hers was so soothing to me and so stark and clear and seemingly simple and just really distilled. And that was incredibly nurturing um, or it felt like it could be nurturing. Then when I began reading about Martin's life and I started to learn about the very unsimple life she'd led, the very complicated life she'd led, I was sort of wonderstruck by the fact that she was able to set that complexity aside and create the art and the writing that she made. And I wanted that for myself. So I thought I should probably pursue it as totally as I could. I imagine, though, I don't want to presume that some of the desire to translate your fears around pregnancy and motherhood into a writing retreat might have been fears about what motherhood might do to your life as a writer uh, to perhaps want to write more to assert the writer in you as you were about to become a mother and hopefully a mother writer. Is that a, is that off base? It's not off base. I really, when I was going into my, you know, several week ish period in New Mexico to think about Agnes Martin and write like Agnes Martin and try my best to live a little bit like Agnes Martin. I really had this fear, like I might never write again after the baby is born. It might like a switch might flip and it might be over. And like, sometimes I would have moments of thinking like, I guess that would be what it is. Like I would, I was, I had a sort of like grim acceptance and at other times I thought there's no way that that can happen. How would I survive if I couldn't, if I couldn't write or if I wasn't writing anymore, who would I even be? And so there's a little bit of turning to Martin and devoting myself to her in the way that I did that I really see as being, um, you know, like a last ditch total effort to really give myself to, to writing and to, to being more disciplined, more focused, more devoted than I'd really ever been for a concentrated period of time. Um, which isn't to say that like, I wasn't incredibly focused and devoted and diligent as I was like rewriting, I must have you or something like that. Like I remember those days of rewriting being incredibly, incredibly like tunnel vision um, in, a, in a wonderful feeling way. But there was just this different pressure on it in 2019 when I went to New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think you're off base at all. 
well, I was hoping we could hear the opening to the book. At the end of June, shortly before I left for Taos, I tried to forget the baby. I laid a hand on my belly and felt him squirm. At night, the baby was active, kicking my false ribs. The 3D ultrasound images rendered him a clay green doll boy, snub nose, one dimple, and 10 tiny floating fingers. I removed my hand. I tried to forget connotations of the word belly, paunchy, fat, sea beer, embroiling hell, sea of the beast. I inched to the edge of the mattress. I tried to forget my husband snoring beside me and our dog Lucy curled into herself like a walnut in its shell at the foot of the bed. I tried to forget the bathroom scale. I tried to forget the private browser tab open on my phone. In a 1977 letter to the director of the Guggenheim, painter Agnes Martin writes from Albuquerque, P.S. I have no phone. Very inconvenient, but I can't stand the suddenness of it. I tried to forget debt payoff plans and redacted debt payoff plans in the notebook I devoted to notes on Agnes Martin. I tried to forget I was lying in a blissfully comfortable bed. Often the material comforts I sought enraged me. They reminded me of comforts I couldn't buy. Currently, comfort with a schismatic identity, woman who puts writing first and never wants kid and pregnant body. Or they reminded me of my bourgeois bent, an unstraightenable bent, and then I'd feel extra ashamed to own a blissfully comfortable bed. I considered Grace Paley's adage, keep below overhead, and I adored cathedral ceilings. And this was not a bad night. I didn't need to forget killing myself would end the shame and rage. I didn't need to forget my dark nerve. I simply tried to forget I was a wife, a daughter, a sister, a friend, a professor, and soon to be a mother. I tried to forget I was a writer. I turned on my side and wedged a pillow between my thighs. I imagined vapors of ambition, attachment, envy, desire, rage, ego, intellect, and pride floating off my body like the souls of cartoon weasels shot dead. An empty mind requires an empty body requires an empty mind. I tingled with hope. I thought, I'm going to Taos. I'm going to write where Agnes Martin painted, which was also where Agnes Martin wrote. For months, I'd been obsessed with a German and English edition of Agnes Martin writings. Like any good obsession, this obsession had grown all-consuming. I read like a desperate sinner, ready to be raptured. Only occasionally, it struck me. This was the absolute worst time to be obsessed with Agnes Martin. My therapist said there were no shoulds. I balked. Shoulds are everywhere when you're pregnant. Trudging through the second trimester, I felt I should be obsessed with the hazy formation of eyelids and nostrils, with dodging fishy mercury and upping my iron, with layettes, burp cloths, rompers, and impossibly small socks. My Bible should have been what to expect or pregnancy 101. Other mothers-to-be cared for all that. When I didn't, I felt negligent and odd, like a good, bad student, capable, vamping as defiant. I was sad for the part of me that would die if I cared about motherly things. I resented the time I wasted mourning that part of me. Then I would be buoyed by choice. I'd feel cocky and hot. I wasn't bound to shoulds that would make my pregnancy journey a glowy, goopy, consumerist bonanza. I was bound to the essays and poems of one of the most important American artists of the 20th century, 
an 11th hour abstract expressionist, a Canadian born champion of the West, a prophet of New Mexico, who lived as a pauper, save luxury sports cars, who rejected ostentation and fame like she rejected sex and feminism and gender and distinctions, who once joked slash didn't joke, she wasn't a woman but a doorknob, whose career spanned five decades, whose paintings in the reproductions I paged through, grids and bands and stripes in a palette the color of a faded photograph were rigid and also dreamy. Agnes Martin, as one critic put it on the occasion of the artist's 1992 retrospective at the Whitney, had attained cult status as homesteading heir to O'Keeffe's New Mexico, quote, a guru of female self-reliance, end quote. I hated that critic. I hated her dismissal of Martin's writings, quote, little sayings extolling her Spartan ways, end quote. Also, it was wrong. Agnes Martin writings includes no extolments of her Spartan ways, at least not in detail. Martin doesn't write about her dietary tics, only walnuts and hard cheese and tomatoes one season, Knox gelatin with bananas another, a pot of soup simmering for days on end. She doesn't write about her prairie-born hardiness, her facility with a chainsaw, her ability to man a tractor or collect rainwater or build stretchers for her canvases or mold adobe bricks. She's more universal. Like Teresa of Avila, whose interior castle Martin admired, she writes about interior life, suffering, joy, beauty, perfection, vision, rooting her precepts in the existence of the artist, a poetics of creativity. She doesn't write little sayings. She writes short pragmatic paragraphs broken into verse, lines interrupted mid clause, polished to a scriptural sheen. It didn't matter how many times I read the essays, their themes, issuing ideas and the intellect for positive feelings, art born of happiness and innocence and beauty, tendering the virtues of solitude, entranced me. Entrance, a doorway or a gate, and to fill with wonder and delight and to cast a spell on. When I read Agnes Martin, where do I go? What spell does she cast? Perhaps a tundra of white space where I can jam myself into her enjambments. Perhaps her high desert solitude, the ideal state for the artist, is so alluring to me because achieving it is not only elusive and hard, but carrying the baby a biological impossibility. I had a predilection for impossibility. You impose these totally unreasonable expectations on yourself, my husband would say. My husband was right. It was an unreasonable expectation that I could go to Taos and live like Agnes Martin, pregnant with a husband and a dog. We've been listening to Joanna Novak read from Contradiction Days, an artist on the verge of motherhood. There's a focus both, I think, in Martin's writing and her geometric abstract grids on the ideal and on perfection which she doesn't see as something out in the world or something in the eye, but something located within. With regards to the ideal, she says, I would like my work to be recognized as being in the classic tradition, Coptic, Egyptian, Greek, Chinese, as representing the ideal in the mind. Classical art cannot possibly be eclectic. One must see the ideal in one's own mind. It is like a memory of perfection. And in explaining what classical means, she says, 
classicism is not about people, and this work is not about the world. We called Greek classicism idealism. Idealism sounds like something you can strive for. They didn't strive for idealism at all. Just follow what Plato has to say. Classicists are people that look out with their back to the world. It represents something that isn't possible in the world, more perfection than is possible in the world. It's as unsubjective as possible. And finally, these lines. Being detached and impersonal is related to freedom. That's the answer for inspiration, the untroubled mind. Plato says that all that exists are shadows. To a detached person, the complication of the involved life is like chaos. If you don't like the chaos, you're a classicist. If you like it, you're a romanticist. I, I quote all of this so people can sort of get a feel for her vibe, but also, at, at least at the beginning, it feels like your impulse for this trip has a classicist element to it, an aiming for a perfecting impulse. You set up rules for these 18 days, aspiring to achieve what Martin calls positive freedom. No internet, no phone. Your husband stops drinking, goes on fasts. You excessively exercise and skip meals by implementing a popcorn strategy all of which feels not simply like a retreat, but almost like a series of purification rituals. I don't know if that feels like a fair characterization of them, but I wondered if you see them connected to this inner idealism of Martin's, this notion of looking out with one's back to the world. Um, and if you don't, maybe you could speak a little bit to the the rules and restrictions that become part of creating a, a pressurized, I think, a pressurized space in this writing retreat. There's definitely a Martin-esque impulse in implementing the rules. I felt acutely when I was pregnant that there are lots of ways one was supposed to be perfect as a pregnant person that were like super super superficial, like there's this kind of perfection that one is supposed to attain in pregnancy. I feel like that's like, you're going to have the right stroller on your registry, or you're going to like wear the right maternity clothes, or you're going to like eat the right way. Or... And I found that really depressing. <laughs> I found that really limiting at times it fe I felt almost disrespectful to like this sort of like incredible, profound thing of a new life that, that one is pregnant and like one is thinking about like, you know, getting, I don't know, baby Burberry or something like that. It's just, it felt so, so deeply superficial, right? To quote Andy Warhol. And like, I really hated that impulse. And yet I also found myself sucked into it a little bit. You know, you use the phrase purification ritual. My obsession with Martin was sort of like an extended purification. It was like, can I, can I cleanse myself of these 
earthly impulses. That's putting a lot on her, you know, like that's making her into quite a, quite a lot, but it was definitely, that was definitely part of my aim in setting up roles was to give myself to, to just see what happens if, if I forego some of the, I don't know, creature comforts, such a silly phrase, but like creature comforts or like, um, ways that I let my mind be sort of like lazy or unfocused or, or the ways that I get sort of sucked into forgetting to prioritize making art and get sort of attracted to like buying the thing or looking the way or, you know, and so I was trying to turn my back to the world. Writing feels to me always like this way of accessing something that's more perfect than anything I can encounter, except like maybe within someone else's book or someone else's painting or a film. Even the struggle of it feels sort of more pure and perfect than, than any sort of experience that's external. You, you say at one point that you wanted to write sentences that achieve the grace and balance of Martin's grids. And one of your restrictions that I'd particularly love to hear about is inspired by her trademark six foot by six foot canvases. So six foot by six foot geometric grids. And you did your own writing in six by six text boxes. I was hoping maybe you could talk about the why, the how, and and the effect of doing this. I didn't want to write about Agnes Martin. I didn't want to write through her or I didn't want to describe her. I wanted to sort of like write beside her, I suppose. And I didn't know what that would look like. And at some point when I, you know, was reading about her and learning more about her before, before the trip to Taos, I discovered this detail about the six by six foot canvas, which eventually shrunk when six by six foot became too unwieldy for her and her in her older age. But I just thought, oh, like that's so manageable. If nothing else, I can make a text block because as a poet, like it's not uncommon to make a text block. I've read a poem in a text block often because it's an aesthetically, it's aesthetically pleasing to have the tidiness of the edges of the lines. I'm always interested in these sort of constraints and containments for writing. And, and like you said earlier, like the way that that creates a sort of pressurized space. And the text block was sort of like the ultimate pressurized space. And at the same time, I wanted to give myself some degree of grace or freedom and thought like, I don't really care what goes in these text blocks actually while I'm in Taos. If I come to my desk every morning and fill them up one after another, after another, after another, that's the work. And I, I really was guided by something I read about Martin and I think it was a Vogue profile where the profiler said, where the, where the profiler reports that Martin might paint 500 canvases in a year and keep 10, mm. something like that. And it, it reminds me too of the sort of Russell Edson 
mythology of like basically typing as many prose poems as you can in an hour and like maybe you end up with 20 and maybe one or two are good and that's not always the way I work but I thought for this period of time if I want to really just try to do something different that's in touch with Martin that would be that would be a good way to go and so the very first morning that I woke up in in the casita in Taos it was like 5 a.m. or something. It's very dark. And I went to my little office, which was the children's bedroom in the casita. It's a little rickety table and some bunk beds next to me. And I opened up my laptop and I made sure my Wi-Fi was turned off. And I opened a new Word document and I drew a six by six inch text block. Then I pressed insert page break and I copy pasted the text block and I did that 60 times. And I thought if I can write 60 of these while I'm here, that would be a success, Mm. you know? And so I didn't, I didn't start with this blank page either. You know, I started with this like document that already had sort of like 60 spots to fill. And then I just set about typing within them. And that was my, and that was my boundary, you know, I would like type whatever I was thinking about considering, remembering, puzzling. And when I got to the end of the text block, that was that I had to move on. And it forced me to keep, to keep going. I might write like 12 of them in a morning and that would feel like something had been accomplished, even if I had no idea what was really like, useful or interesting or articulate in those text blocks, I was, I was filling them. And so I was amassing pages. And then at some point after like a week, I was like, oh, that's close to 60 already. I guess I should add some more text blocks because I'm clearly going to keep doing this every morning that I'm in Taos and just see what happens. Well, when you wrote your book length poem, Noir Mania, you took 80 pages of poems and put them through a series of Google translations and then randomized the resulting text. And then you used find and replace functions on one word for another, enlarged the font to 20, and then printed out the resulting 200 pages, which had started as 80. And then over the course of a long weekend, you wrote Noir Mania from these 200 pages by largely sharpening out text and then retyping it and then creating a nine line form to contain or constrain it. So thinking of that and thinking about these 60 grid boxes, it made me wonder more about constraints and experimental conceits, whether that was something that characterizes your writing process across books or not and also how you see constraints in relationship to freedom. I wondered if you were like the writers of Ulipo who argue that following one's impulses is actually the unfree position, that adopting constraints and then the discovery within them is the true freedom. But either way, I'd love to hear about whether these two examples, the grid boxes and and the more extreme noir mania example, are are um, symptomatic of 
your process, generally speaking, when you write, and then maybe you have some philosophical or craft-oriented insights around what constraint means in relation to experiment and writing. I hate to start my thoughts on the philosophical implications of this with like a Seinfeld reference, but I really am thinking about that one episode where George Costanza just decides that he's going to do everything against his own impulse and see what what that yields. And I think it yields good things mostly. And I, I do think there's a little of the like, Costanzian impulse in, in my like sort of self annihilating tendencies um, when it comes to like generative process or editing process for a really, really, really long time. I've been aware of the fact that when there's some kind of condition or constraint or rule tied to a piece of writing, it's sort of like, comes out of the oven extra hot for me. I'm mixing metaphors, but like, I remember being really like starting college and I had this, I had a boyfriend at the time who was also a writer and I was like trying to write a short story. And he was like, well, write a story that has the color green and a badminton racket and this word and this word in it. And I was like, oh, okay, I will all of those sort of little conditions felt they're so minor to the story. No one would notice them, but having those conditions really made me feel like I had this like extra purpose. You know, I had this sort of greater, greater mission to accomplish, I guess. And I was happy with what resulted from that experiment And other people in my life were happy with what resulted from that experiment too. And I was like, oh, this is sort of, this is interesting. And that was like, I was 18. So I hadn't really read a lot of the the kind of like Lipo folks that I've read at this point. Like I was just starting college. But very shortly thereafter, I started reading like a little bit, a little bit of you know, like Robert Coover and feeling like there was something very exciting and kind of like scandalizing about bringing some chance and randomness and kind of postmodern instability to the text or to the writing process. I also think like with noir mania, particularly like that was a kind of angry act because the the 80 pages of poems that I uh decimated um (laughs) were (laughs) that book had like been accepted by a press that folded and folded for some some reasons that were were um particularly unsavory and then the book kept being like a finalist or a semi-finalist. And I was just like, what? Like, I'm, I hate this. I really hate this. Like all of these poems have been published and the book is a fine book. And now I'm just tired of it, you know, whatever. And so I just thought I've got to do something with this material. And so like destroying it and there, and then transforming it felt like a really 
good thing to do. It was like a productive use of my anger. And it was like anger that was not even very alive at the time. Like when I, when I spent that weekend reworking that material, it was a couple years that I, it had been a couple years since I found out like the book was accepted and then the press was closing, you know, like it wasn't like I was like living with a lot of rage over that, but I, I, it would, it would bother me sometimes, you know, like I would think like I had that manuscript, it was like all ready to go. Like, and now I'm so sick of these individual poems and I, but like, there's something here, you know? And so I, I end up doing that. I think not infrequently with writing where I draw on some alternative generative strategy. It's not like I want to totally eradicate my subjectivity. I want to like dismantle part of it. You know, I just moved. And so I'm thinking about drywall and like, I think I want to kind of crack through the drywall and kind of like see what's behind there. Yeah. In your teaching statement at Mount St. Mary's, you quote Agnes Martin, who said, you can't draw a perfect circle, but in your mind, there is a perfect circle that you draw towards. From there, you talk about how you help students to work towards the perfection in their minds. Like the word constraint, perfection, at least to me, feels like and sounds like the opposite of freedom when you first hear it. And yet in your statement, you talk about how you're helping students move toward their internal perfection, not by polishing an economy, but via experimentation and play, both in the drafting and in the revision stages. And I wondered if you could share anything, if anything comes to mind about favorite exercises or techniques that have been particularly successful when you help people move toward their inner perfection by doing things that might seem at least sounds in this statement, messy or, or um, outside the box. I think that I've been really like, I kind of have to give credit where credit is due here. I've been really lucky to, to have mentors and, and teachers who have taught me a lot of these things. So I don't know that I'm like, I don't know that there's anything so novel about what I suggest, but like when I was at UMass for my poetry MFA, a really common move in poetry workshop would be like Peter Gizzi reading somebody's poem backwards. And I can't tell you how many times I suggest to a student, like, let's look at this paragraph backwards or let's look at this poem backwards. How does it work? And like, similarly, like what happens if you look at this poem and consider every other line, right? Or decide on a word or a phrase that just is not going to exist in the work anymore. Like we're not quite cutting out the letter E, but like, let's see if the word feeling or feel some version of that word just doesn't, isn't allowed anymore. What happens? How does this get stronger? How does it change? So I think those kind of like little, those little things are almost always successful. Like it's, it's almost, it's almost eerie to me how often 
I can look at somebody else's poem or my own poem and like look every other line, like read every other line or read the poem backwards and not find a poem that I like more, that's sort of more startling, more arresting, more more startling, more arresting and less belabored. Mm-hmm. And like, that's the sort of perfection, I think, is like this, this um, and Martin's art, I feel like evinces this. It's like, there's this sense of something that's not belabored. It seems effortless. And I think sometimes the effortless is like lurking within the effort. One of the constraints you adopted while you were in New Mexico was a boycott on looking up anything about Agnes Martin. Why, why this constraint, which seems the most counterintuitive on the surface? I had some books with me and I was not, I was not avoiding looking up information about Agnes Martin in the books, but I believe the internet rots my brain and I didn't want to rot my brain while I was trying to write about Agnes Martin. In some ways that's enough. Like that's enough of an answer. Like I really just feel like that was important to me to sort of like keep my my brain and my concentration pure and i don't feel like there's i don't feel like using the internet is a way to enhance one's concentration you also mention as another reason martin's aversion to facts and you quote her as saying i'm very careful not to have ideas because they're inaccurate and then i went and looked up some other quotes of hers in this in this vein, like our ideas, deductions made from observed facts of life are of no use in the unfolding of potential. The great and fatal pitfall in the art field and in life is dependence on the intellect rather than inspiration. Dependence on intellect means a consideration of observed facts and deductions from observation as a guide in life. Dependence on inspiration means dependence on consciousness, a growing consciousness that develops from awareness of beauty and happiness. To live and work by inspiration, you have to stop thinking. So nevertheless, outside of these 18 days, you did do a lot of different sorts of research for the book beyond reading her and beyond looking at her paintings, including taking art history classes and conducting interviews. Um, So I was hoping you could talk about the research process, some of the discoveries particular to it, and also who you were interviewing and how that went. And I guess partly I asked the latter one because I know, I mean, she had lifelong friendships but she was also a difficult person sometimes, let's say. Um, and so um, I, I wondered how interviewing people, if it's presuming you were interviewing people that knew her, how that went also. So I interviewed a few people who had known Agnes over the years. I spoke with Ann Wilson, who lived with, Martin at Quinty Slip. I spoke with 
painter Pat Steer, who was close friends with Martin. And I spoke with Kim Triber of Taos, who was a good friend of Martin's in the last couple decades of her life. And then I also talked with Lizzie Borden, a filmmaker who, before she was a filmmaker, was a young journalist with Art Forum who was sent to the Mesa to report on Agnes. Talking with those people made Martin feel real in a way that she hadn't been before. I was so aware of the fact that like, we're all people living these very mortal lives, you know? And like, she was a friend to this person or that person at one moment in their very mortal life. And like, I think sometimes when researching somebody or something from the past, even though Martin only died in 2004, there's this way that, there's this way that time sort of like seals over and smooths over and makes a person seem like less dimensional than perhaps she really is. And, and so I don't know that there were any particularly huge discoveries. I mean, like I did really love that Lizzie Borden remembered Agnes Martin having like a very large pot of soup that just simmered and simmered and simmered all day long, nonstop. And like, she would add stuff to it. And like, that's what was eaten. Um, like, I like those little details or the fact that, you know, Ann Wilson remembered Agnes Martin making muffins or things like that. But mostly it was just like hearing, hearing these women talk about her as a friend and as a familiar that was really important for me in figuring out how to how to bring everything I'd been reading and learning about her to life in the book. You know, like I felt a real imperative to animate that material, to portray her as roundly as she had become to me over the, the years that I was learning about her. And then I write about this, but in, in the book a little bit, I don't think it's really giving anything away. Like a couple of years after I was in New Mexico, I had this experience of going to the video data bank at the Art Institute of Chicago. And they have video footage of interviews with Agnes from 1974 and 1976, I believe. And it was a really quite intense experience just sitting in this little viewing room alone and watching this very, very grainy footage of her and hearing her voice. And I, when I was in New Mexico, I purposefully avoided watching any documentary footage or interview footage with her because I didn't want to hear her. Like I was, I was sort of afraid to hear her. And then when I finally did hear her voice, it was so different than I expected it. It was so much more approachable and she was so much funnier, um, down to earth a little bit. And that was really like pretty profound. And then also like after I watched those videos, in your, after I watched the video interviews at the video data bank, the staff gave me like a big folder of all their material. 
inside this big folder was just like her last address in town. It was like written on a piece of paper with her phone number. And I just had the thought like, wow, what if, what if 25, this had happened 25 years earlier. Like I used to write fan letters to celebrities all the time when I was a child, like I probably would have called her or written her a letter or something like that. And that was just like, I kind of got goosebumps at that moment thinking like the connection to people is actually often so much closer than we we really think it might be. Well, I like your impulse to complicate a smoothing out of a person's image, like the detail of the of the pot, but also how her of her simmering soup pot, but also um, the way her voice sounds or her demeanor, and it maybe not exactly matching up with her as a symbol. I, I loved a lot of the trivia that you unearthed in passing in the book and also things that I discovered on my own listening to some Agnes Martin focused podcasts in anticipation of today, but that she was a Olympic level competitive swimmer, uh, that she was a chauffeur for John Houston before living in New Mexico. And another one that I loved, this was recounted by the head of the Tate Modern Museum was that when she moved to New Mexico in the late 60s and she said no to the New York art world, she was having a lot of success then already. So it wasn't, the no wasn't, this isn't working for me. I mean, it wasn't working for her, but she was leaving a world that was already starting to celebrate her in significant ways. She leaves the grid, finds this remote land outside of Taos, and then builds her own house, um, which is amazing. But then when people go looking for her in town and asking people, do you know of this woman painter who's living alone off the grid? The answer was that was often given was, oh, you mean the lady who acquires and seasons our bearskins for us? I thought was so hilarious. Like, I don't know if she's killing the bears, but who knows? Maybe she is killing the bears. Does that spark any other, like, you know, minutia, like little details that get squeezed out of the narrative like that? I don't know if I write about this. Kim Triber, who ran a nonprofit in Taos that supported youth in crisis she was good friends with Martin and she told me about how it was not uncommon to like go driving in the afternoon with Agnes and like they would do things like try on silly hats at the thrift store or like, like that detail is funny to me or the fact that she had Chianti and steak for lunch every day in town and Taos or um, that she had a photo of Bill Clinton in her room from when she was awarded the, was it a presidential medal of honor or like one of those awards? I don't know. Like all of it is kind of delightful. I like that she liked Agatha Christie novels. I like that she liked Beethoven, liked to sing show tunes and things like that. Or that she was a Gertrude Stein fanatic and would recite lifting belly. I mean, I think that a lot of that is the sort of clutter that I was afraid of when I was pregnant 
and it's not in her paintings and it's not in her writing, but like it's part of her. Well, you have another book that is shaped by your pregnancy, your last poetry collection, New Life. In talking about that book, you say that you fell into a bad depression, one that frightened you after you learned you were pregnant. And your go-to way to mitigate the dips in your mood had always been running, which was now forbidden because of the pregnancy. And that you felt ashamed at feeling depressed because everyone around you was so happy for you that it was from this place that you wrote New Life. Before we talk about the ways writing about and into your pregnancy differed when you were writing poetry versus memoir, I was hoping first you could talk about one way that, at least to me, the two projects feel similar. In the case of New Life, there's a certain movie that was an inspiration to begin writing because it had to do with a remote island and a sense of banishment or isolation. And it got you into a regimen for two months of writing two hours a day about preparing for this new life, but preparing for this new life by looking at it through the lens of isolation. So I was hoping you could talk about this movie in relationship to the poems, but also thinking of new life in relationship to contradiction days about this attraction to banishment, whether it be to an island or to the desert, for instance. Well, the movie was cast away. It was not the Tom Hanks cast away, but rather the 1986 Nicholas Roeg movie. It's a movie based on a true story about a middle-aged man who places an ad in the classifieds asking for a companion, a female companion with whom he can spend time on a remote desert island. And a woman answers that ad and the two travel to an island and everything that one might imagine ensues, ensues. That movie, um, it was sort of fantastic to me because it sort of inverted or broke a few different tropes. Trope's not even the right word. Like, I like the sort of way that that plays on, like, what's one thing you could take to a desert island or, you know, the whole, like, desert island paradigm, I guess. I was also really interested in the arbitrariness of expedition in some ways. Like, being at a place in life, as as this young woman was, where one just answers an ad and does something sort of like this and is taken away voluntarily and surrenders sort of a a degree of control. This goes back to the conversation about like constraint, right? Like I'm interested in what happens when there's a degree of control surrendered, especially in art. When you surrender control, there's a way that you're agreeing to be banished to this place. You know, you're agreeing to be sent to this place without something without a degree of agency or without, you know, a railing to hold on to or something. And so 
the film spoke to a lot of what I was feeling in the first trimester of pregnancy where I, I was in a way excited to be pregnant. I was happy when I found out I was pregnant and I was also petrified and dealing with really horrible prenatal depression, like really horrible. And so I didn't have control over it. I didn't feel like it was I, anything I was doing was affecting a change in that orientation toward myself or the world, even sort of writing it off to hormonal fluctuations still didn't make it better. It was so scary. And so I really did have this sort of moment where I like sat down and wrote, you know, wrote in my journal, like you have to make yourself write every day, read every day and take a walk every day. And like, let's see if you can get yourself better from by doing those things. And what I decided I would write every day was a poem. And the first poem was based on that, that movie Castaway. And then what do you know, after like a month of doing that, I really did feel better. And so it was just another reminder that like, I shouldn't abandon my writing when life gets difficult or when my mind is in a place of unrest, but maybe I'm being too hard on myself. I'm not sure. Well, how do you think the ways you depicted pregnancy differs between the two books and how much of that do you think is because of a difference in form? In other words, do you feel like a different persona is created in one book versus the other, a different mood or tone or orientation to the baby to come? And if so, in, in what way? New Life is a horror, it's like a horror movie. It's like Rosemary's Baby meets Shutter <laughs> Island meets Castaway meets something else. Like it's it's got those kind of, horror notes to it the speaker in that in, in, in new life is kind of imperiled i'd say and seeking but like negatively seeking and if we're thinking about martin's idea of positive freedom i think there's a sort of negative freedom in new life there's a little bit of like haughtiness there's a little bit of searching with the sense that there will, there's no answer to be found, feeling, feeling lost in a fertile land. I don't know that New Life is particularly optimistic as a book. I mean, there might be some notes of optimism, but not, not a lot. And I love poetry because I can write a book or a poem or a series of poems that explores that sensibility or that like nexus of feeling there's language and there's form and there's myriad poetic devices that make that explored affect something more something beautiful perhaps something like sensual or rhythmic or whatever I don't know if that works as well in a piece of prose. I feel like it could be really dreary. And so I think, to get back to your question, the narrator in Contradiction Days, she is, she wants to, she wants to attain that positive freedom that Martin espouses. She wants 
that kind of lightness. She wants to step beyond the the appeal of of darkness or the kind of um, the ways in which sort of disorder and unrest have served her. Like she believes, I think, that there is something beyond that that sort of like beauty and self-destruction. Agnes Martin represents that. And so she's chasing it. You have a couple Roland Bart epigraphs in the poetry collection that I love that are not on their own about pregnancy until they appear in your poetry collection and, and then they suddenly are. One is what in the straining body can be immobilized? And later in the book, I come out, it is ecstasy. I was hoping we could hear two poems from New Life before we return to Contradiction Days, just to get a sense of this other way into the same place in your life that feels very radically different. I was hoping we could hear Cock Anamnesis for 1919 and Tides. Cock Anamnesis for 1919. I wanted a private beach. He wanted to take me below the bank and let me open the safe. Cocking his head, the miracle man showed me his miry root. Ruckling, spoiled, he wanted to crack my knuckles, puddle my ink, twist me by the pinky, fat me on roses, raise the islands in my fingerprints, blur the whorls. Everything was lost when I took off my sunglasses, but the man insisted, have a sonogram. His bay's daybed, algal fountain. He likes me big and blind and behaving, at least until siesta. Then I can waddle the grounds, see the poquitas, feed the nanny's pineapple leather. All I have to do is keep my leash. Say I am leashed to his cock, kissing it, bleeding, hurting for it. No, I don't faint. Finally, I get to the beach. I saw it from a distance, a wing where earth meets sky. This morning, I'm sure I saw it still. I face what I know is there. I don't say much anymore. Our plane disappeared in the mountains. Tides. Waterland, Riverland, Island, Maldivian, Shaka, Zori, Nice. Waiting in waist high, wait, where is the waist? My bulge, my bilge, my breasts, my rolled neck feels like the rest of my life. Totting weeks to translate days, number of spanks to break a pinata, tucks to snug a sarong. Who is a friend? Who an island hopper? The meetings I skip, the meetings I make, drugs I drop in the courtyard pasura. With my hair still dry at intake, I could be peaceful or parrot, calm offshore, intriguing as an Inselberg, at least give you good drowning, choke myself cured with a nut, a net, how else? I come from a lost family, screwed below the navel, baby boy. You only add a bit to this addition. Slight rise in sea level, submerging the hilly coast. Been listening to Joanna Novak read from her last poetry collection, New Life. So as you were reading that last piece, I looked up Inselberg 
which I didn't know. Um, intriguing as an Inselberg. And it's, it's um, to go along with what we've been talking about, about banishment and isolation, it's an isolated hill, as surely you know. But I'm thinking about intriguing as an Inselberg. I don't think the word Inselberg is in contradiction days, but you do encounter words like Inselberg that I think are partly there for their sonic qualities. And I wanted to talk about maybe the influence of a poetics on your sentences and on your prose. In an interview at Hobart, you relate that an early writing teacher told you there were two types of writers, formalists and stylists, and that you were a stylist. And that whether that's actually true, that pronouncement gave you permission to lead with the sentence and then to push the limits of narrative to accommodate the sentence rather than have the sentence accommodate the narrative. And then interestingly, you say, this sometimes feels almost like painting to me. Um, in that spirit, I wanted to, I guess I wanted to mention your interview with Gariel Lutz, the author of one of my all-time favorite writing essays, The Sentence is a Lonely Place which I think gives the most incredible view of a Gordon Lishian poetics for prose writers. It's an essay that I discussed with Diane Williams and Christine Scutt when they were on the show. In that Lutz interview, you call that essay a guide to reading and writing that leads with style. And I guess I was hoping you could talk more about leading with style or the poetics of the sentence for you and the method of how you attend to, if there is a method of how you intend to syntax and music when writing in sentences. I love that essay so much. Me too. Leading with style. It's funny because I, I don't know that in contradiction days, I particular, I particularly led with style, at least in like the final the final revision of it. I actually think that like one reason I really like creative nonfiction as a genre is because I feel a reprieve from style or I feel like there's something else that seems to take priority, which I roughly consider articulating something clearly and vividly enough for a reader to come away persuaded, maybe not have their mind changed or, you know, their politics shifted, but to be persuaded. I cannot get myself in writing a poem or a short story to believe that that's important. Uh, I just feel like those are forms for me that are almost always about, it's interesting that I said this already, like about sort of like painting with language, um, about putting language together in a way that creates an evocative experience that may or may not make narrative sense that may or may not be logical. In fiction, it has to do with a little bit of my taste for 
surrealists like Leonora Carrington, or like I mentioned, Robert Coover earlier, like I do have this kind of appetite for writers who in their, in their fiction prioritize style, put Virginia Woolf in this camp too, you know? And so I don't know that I have a particular way of attending to language when I'm, when I'm writing, it feels almost automatic and, and like sort of trance-like as I'm doing the writing. But I realize it's not just like I sit down and there's some sort of like divine transmission where I just like type something and, or write something and it, it's sort of torqued in the way I want it to be linguistically. What it reminds me of is I'm a baker too. And like, it reminds me of making croissants or some kind of laminated dough where you're folding something in, sealing it, rolling it out, turning it, folding something in, you know, sealing it, rolling it out, refolding it, turning it. That's a little bit what it feels like to work on the language in a piece of writing for me. There's this sort of constant attention, a regular attention that needs to be paid. And yet there also needs to be a kind of lightness of touch. Otherwise the the material or the dough is overworked or tough or your butter melts out and leaks everywhere. And that's no good. And so I feel like it's this really kind of like delicate and strong thing at the same time, because it requires some degree of endurance. There's like a, that's the strength, but again, it has to be delicate. But in, in writing nonfiction, I feel like, especially like as I was drafting and redrafting contradiction days, I really just kept trying to be sort of like less encumbered by that concern for style with every draft, because I felt like it's impeding my ability to tell this story in a way that's persuasive. Given that you're using this metaphor of, of baking and, and kneading, which I mean, I hope this is going to be a future essay, kneading the words, I think could be the sequel to the sentence of is the, is the lonely place. Um, I wanted to return to this way you've paired the origin story for you as a writer and origin story of the issues you've had around eating. In a lot of your books, there's a story about their creation that feels like it involves a regimen and also a sort of obsessiveness. And Martin shared this. She felt like self-imposed restrictions kept her mind clear and gave her more energy for the art itself. For instance, one winter she only consumed walnuts, hard cheeses, and preserved tomatoes. And another, she only ate a concoction of gelatin, orange juice, and bananas. And when she was in a period of intense output, she would default to a banana and coffee diet. And this combination of constriction or restriction, and then the maximalism of the obsession itself, in this case, your obsession with Martin, is something that you explore in Contradiction Days. You say you have a fear of debauchery if you're alone at the residency uh, of losing discipline and control. So part of the constriction and restriction is in response to an imagined state of being if you don't have the restriction. And you explore obsessive books like J. Baker's The Peregrine, books that are mono-focused, in this case on hawks, in a way that you say 
in its obsessive specificity, the book achieves something universal. In a Los Angeles Review of Books interview about your, your story collection, you say, the pull between minimal, spare, restrictive, and maximal, baroque, indulgent in my writing on the level of the sentence, perhaps even the word. This stylistic tendency echoes something of starving and binging and purging. And your therapist within the memoir is convinced that anorexia is a disease of self-enclosure and that self-enclosure, the way Martin was able to keep the outside world out of her paintings, was what drew you to her. And I wondered about this. When you say that you don't like how so much of Agnes Martin's life is often viewed through the pathologizing lens of mental illness, not that you would want to ignore. And we have, I think it's remarkable, we haven't actually mentioned that she was a paranoid schizophrenic. Not that you wanted to ignore this fact. It was significant. She had countless electroshock treatments. She went into states of extreme catatonia, sometimes was only persevering because of her friendship circle that would help her through these episodes, but that you didn't think this could or should explain everything or that it should be the only portal or main portal in which to view her through. And I guess I wondered if you were doing the same for eating disorders in some way, trying to take them out of their frame or sort of totalizing way of explanation and showing how they can affect your sentences and your artistic output, for example, as something that complicates them. Yeah, in some way, definitely. And not like as some sort of masterminded scheme, you know, it's just sort of something I think that like, like you can hear me talking, you can probably hear my Midwestern vowels. I feel like you can also probably in my sentences read a certain kind of like, I, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Illinois. You could probably also hear that. Like I could, you could also read that I grew up with an eating disorder. And I just feel like there are things that, that there are experiences we have in life that are so imprinted on us that they're sort of unavoidable, especially if one is sensitive to them. So it's not like I'm trying to depathologize eating disorders or anything like that, but many times I've had the experience of reading a person's work and the work might have nothing to do with eating disorder, like zero. And I'll feel this sort of like tingle of recognition about how appetite or desire or hunger or something is depicted. And then I will discover that the writer also has had experience with eating disorder. And so I don't think that I'm sort of like unique in my work reflecting, in my, in my style reflecting some of this experience. I might just go ahead and make a big statement. Like, I feel like eating disorders for me have been a lot about a really convoluted relationship with longing and satisfaction and how does that not express itself in one's language, you know? At the same time, the narrator in Contradiction Days is 
living her best to not be in an eating disordered place. Like she's doing her best to not be eating disordered. It's not very perfect, but she's trying because she does not see that as a productive place because like for all the ways that there are these sort of like traces of the eating disorder on language or sense of narrative time or even sort of like kind of obsessive focus as a subject matter like I think the eating disorder is connected to all of that there's also like the knowledge that stepping into an active eating disorder eradicates the possibility of that creative output if that makes sense like being sick with an eating disorder I was unable to read clearly I wasn't really writing a lot I was not well getting over my eating disorder I've been able to read you know read and remember books that I'm reading and have meaningful relationships and concentrate on my writing and develop my craft and all these things. And and yet at the same time, it's like, I can't, I don't disavow having had an eating disorder for 20 years, 20 plus years. Like it was related to me creating myself as a writer. Having an eating disorder was a way to say like, I'm going to be this kind of person. And that kind of person was a person who was a writer or an artist of some kind. I wish I could like go back in time and save myself some of the pain and unwellness and I could undo some of the damage that I did to relationships in the midst of my illness. But I would be wrong to, again, like say that there wasn't some kind of creative or artistic benefit as a result. Your desire to not negate the psychiatric label for Agnes Martin, but to sort of, I think, hold it at bay as a defining principle. And also the way you complicate the portrayal of eating disorders, both in your writing, but also here just now. Um, Another example where I don't think you're advocating for eating disorders, but where someone asks you, what do people get wrong about them? You said, they're not these monastic prisons of piety and perfectionism all the time. They're not always about control. They're not sexless. They're not desireless. Other things too, because I'm assuming some people still think they're about appearance and intake. Food is the knife you play with to see what kind of daredevil you are. I guess this all makes me think of another aspect of Agnes Martin's life that is super interesting to me, and that's her refusal of identity labels. Mm -hmm. So she was fiercely protective of her homosexuality, um, not only never identifying as a lesbian, but way beyond that. As, As you've already mentioned in your reading, at one point she said, I am not a woman, but a doorknob living a quiet existence, which some people have probably over theorized as being related to the desubjectification of the self, the death of the subject, which she does write about, to becoming one with matter itself. But it also reminds me of 
the experience of standing before her paintings, which we haven't really talked about yet. I was listening to a podcast about the Agnes Martin exhibit at the Tate Modern with the director of the museum, who was talking about how to stand before one of her paintings, it sort of refuses referentiality to other art. She wasn't saying that Martin wasn't influenced. She was by lots of things, everything from Zen Buddhism to Mark Rothko, but almost like the painting demanded your presence before it as a thing before you with everything else pushed away. And in another podcast about Martin with Olivia Lang, she talked about how you couldn't have a static relationship with the painting. There was no viewpoint from which you could take in the painting. If you were farther back, you didn't see the grids at all. You just had this sort of elemental feeling of the colors, the shimmering of the color. And if you stepped forward, you saw the grids. And furthermore, if you step farther, they're, they're more complicated than you thought. Often a double line, not a single line. The two lines having different pigments. You could keep doing that. But both views were essential. And yet neither define the painting. And I wondered if this sparked any thoughts for you about definitions or labels or identity. Was this part of the appeal that maybe the label of mother and the label of writer could be thrown off, that you could move into a different space in this writing regimen, and maybe even in your your future life as a mother and as a writer, that somehow would be able to not be reduced by the labels of either? I think a little bit about also how Martin said you shouldn't spend very long looking at any of her paintings, like a minute or two, you know, like top. <laughs> And, I mean, it it's tops. Yeah. And <laughs> so there's something instructive about looking lightly and like wearing our labels a little, like a little more lightly that I certainly took away from the last few years thinking about Martin and her work. While it was in Taos, I let myself read some books that weren't about Agnes Martin. And one of those was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And in that book, Suzuki writes about the aim of being the swinging door. And I sort of pair that in my mind with Martin's, I'm not a woman, I'm a doorknob. There was something about this period of time to me that made the idea of stepping through or stepping beyond labels seem really enticing. Maybe that would be the sort of existential cure-all. Like if one could just step beyond labeling, labeling the self or identifying too strongly this way or that way as a mother, as a writer, perhaps all of the dis-ease and concern and anxiety and terror would fall away and that there would be this positive freedom. I would better have this ability to tap into the experience of happiness or beauty that Martin describes 
um, that I would better be able to live with or guided by inspiration, whether that inspiration resulted in writing or just right living, like a kind of eudaimonia, like that was a big concern of mine because it felt contrary to how society in the United States wanted me to behave as a mother to be. Well, given that you've written many books of poetry and fiction, and this is your first book of nonfiction, I would normally ask you what venturing into this new territory genre-wise is like for you, particularly what challenges or joys you found in, in representing you as you on the page. But you've written a lot of short nonfiction over the years for high-profile places, and you're very forthcoming about your own life in them, that you went on your first diet when you were 12, that you've had anxiety attacks for 20 years, that you were anorexic at 13, which later became bulimia. Your novel follows a 13-year-old who is a self-appointed diet coach, and some of your short stories have a protagonist named Joanna. So I want to presume that the transition to nonfiction might not be a transition at all. Um, but then in your recent inter interview at The Millions, you are asked about the scene of body dysmorphia when trying on, trying on maternity clothes. And you talk about how if it weren't for the book coming out, most of the people in your life would have no clue that you felt any of this while you were pregnant. Not that you hated your body or that you were depressed or suicidal, that there was an expectation in social situations to come to them with positive energy about it all. And one of the most intense scenes in the book, I think, is where you're seeing a doctor for a pregnancy checkup and he shames you for the thoughts and fears that you express to him. And I also think about your piece in The Atlantic called Pregnant and Depressed that looks at both just how common prenatal depression is, but also the special stigma and embarrassment it brings for the mother. So given that this book, in your own words, would be a sort of revelation to people in your life, about your sort of internal landscape of being pregnant, or at least part of the time you were pregnant, I did wonder what challenges and joys and anxieties and anticipations you had about moving to a book-length book of nonfiction where you are yourself in, in, or more yourself than potentially the Joanna in your short story. Yeah, yeah. The Joanna in my short stories is like always such an auto-fictional confection, I suppose. You know what I mean? Like there's just something very, it's like very insouciant, you know? Yeah. Like I've always written through my own life or with my own life, but often altering it in huge, huge, huge ways um, because I'm writing fiction or poetry and like, that's what one does. And writing nonfiction, like I've, I think I've said this already, but I have the intention of being clear and being, saying honest makes it sound like I'm being dishonest in fiction or poetry, but I, I don't actually know that it's a bad thing. Like I do think there's plenty of lying in fiction and poetry and that's like all for, all for the good. Um, but in nonfiction, I'm really trying to 
communicate and communicate something that's beyond an aesthetic experience. So in representing myself in the memoir, it was important to me. Well, first of all, it was important to me to, to preserve the range of my experiences and feelings from the, the middle of my pregnancy, the period in which the book is set. The first draft of the book contained like all of that energy. And even though those hundred plus text blocks didn't have the same narrative shape, entire scenes or images or sentences from the finished book had, had an earlier life in, in those text blocks. And a challenge that I faced as I was rewriting the book and shaping it, giving it a structure and a stronger narrative was I really loved and I really love being a mother. And I looked at these pages when I was working on them with just almost bafflement and, and a profound sadness that I had so little faith in what like life could offer and what joy life could offer that I was so, so ready to believe that things would be abysmal. Like it just made me really sad for the limitations of myself. That's not to mention like any of the like suicidal ideation or like the really grave stuff that was, that was going on in the early part of my pregnancy. Like, and so as I was rewriting and rewriting and like shaping the book, it, it was very difficult to keep encountering those feelings of what I would now call short-sightedness. They weren't short-sighted in the time I was experiencing them. They were scared and born of real fear. And, and so it was difficult to it was difficult to encounter that material. It wasn't difficult to preserve it because as I mentioned, maybe in the passage that I read earlier, there were certain pregnancy books that were sort of floating around in my life. And I didn't see myself or my experience represented in them really at all. Like I didn't read much about prenatal depression I also, on the other hand, didn't read that you might enjoy sex while you're pregnant or like have like a strong erotic life or that it could be a really productive time artistically, which it ended up being. I mean, the fact that the two books we've been talking about were both drafted in about a four month period in the middle of my pregnancy to me speaks uh, uh, to that. And so it was important to, to represent all of that in this memoir. And so I kept that in mind, I guess, like as I wrote and preserved, enhanced, clarified, really uncomfortable scenes or moments that, that without that material, the book was not sort of true to what I had experienced. And that, you know, the title itself directly addresses this idea that like pregnancy is a time of exquisite contradiction. And sometimes I think that's frightening, you know, like I think I started our conversation by talking about how like the clutter and chaos of my feelings in pregnancy was frightening to me. And I think sometimes contradiction is really 
really unnerving. And perhaps that's why Martin's work is so appealing to us, you know, because it's sort of like, seems to, to be apart from all of, of that. It seems contradictionless. It seems almost like essentialized. It's just to say, I learned a lot about myself in writing a memoir. I learned a lot about myself in a way that I have never learned about myself in writing fiction or poetry. And I don't think that like writing memoir is an act of like therapeutic processing necessarily, but writing this over three years, I got to see myself evolve and grow and change and develop. And that was a, that was a gift. I hope some of that is sort of imparted in the narrative voice that there's that sense of hope or like, I don't love the word wisdom, but I can't think of a better one right now. Insight, guiding, guiding the protagonist. I was hoping we could hear one more brief excerpt as sort of a preface to talking about more about contradiction, but also to go out with talking about my favorite aspect of the book, which we haven't really talked about, which is related to contradiction. So um, <laughs> In front of the casita, I tip my head back, overwhelmed by the field of puffy clouds in the vast blue sky. Then I hefted the fullest box from the car, the one with olive oil, vinegar, and potatoes. Jay, my husband said, come on, let me get that. I'm fine, I said. He shook his head. You know you're not supposed to lift stuff. Behind my sunglasses, I rolled my eyes. I hated when he was protective, so vigilant about protocol. I'd feel reckless being a bare minimum of capable. Obviously, I'd think he's only worried about the baby. But I also loved being watched, knowing he was looking at my body from behind with my back to the world to take Martin entirely out of context. I didn't look pregnant. It was all aggravating and arousing how he dadded me, eyeing my ass. And really, I did understand what I was and wasn't supposed to do. When I was six weeks pregnant, I'd gone running. The sky was woolly gray, fog damp. On 23rd Street, just south of downtown Los Angeles, the moisture in the air activated a stench. Soggy cardboard, corn oil, coils of dog crap. I held my breath and dodged a little Caesar's box of puke. I jogged the first three blocks of my route past Bonsayo, past the mural of sombrero-wearing skeletons on the Lavender apartment building, campus, Estrella. I was slower than usual, aware of my belly with every stride. Finally, I rounded the corner and halted in front of the charter school. It was a weekend. The building was locked up. Usually, the entryway swarmed with children in maroon and khaki, a couple clipboard adults. Now I could hear their phantom chatter, their jabs of laughter, as they watched an old white lady check herself out in the mirrored doors. I turned sideways, front, sideways again. In profile, my lower abdomen bulged, barely, but still. It looked like I'd eaten an entire order of pad thai or had a couple of pillowcases stuffed in my hoodie's kangaroo pocket. I felt vain and slow. This was real. The pregnancy book sitting on our coffee table said, no jumping. No bouncing, jostling, jarring, violent movements. I remembered a childhood friend's father who used to call running, pounding your body against the pavement. How extreme and violent and hot that sounded to me. Did the restriction apply to the first trimester or the second or the third? All of them? How much had I fucked up? I hadn't been running fast and I was winded. That was bad. I slid my hand under my sweatshirt above my waistband onto my skin. I rubbed my stomach. 
I sulked for a moment, dejected not to be running. Then my disdain spread into terror and I walked the rest of the three mile loop. Had I already jostled the tiny embryonic cell mass? When I got home, I stood in the shower and dragged a bar of seaweed soap over my ribs. I rubbed the grit on my belly, whispering, hi baby, hi baby, hi baby, hi baby. Listening to Joanna Novak read from Contradiction Days. So the contradiction in the title, Contradiction Days, I think can be read several ways. One is, as you've alluded to, Agnes Martin's own life. Nothing was more important to Martin than the ocean, for instance, but she lived in the landlocked desert. She was in many ways an, an aesthetic, but she also loved parties and, as you mentioned, ate steaks and margaritas, and she also drove fast cars. She said she woke up every morning to paint, but sometimes that meant not getting out of bed until three in the afternoon if she didn't know what she wanted to do yet. She hated the mythologizing of artists, and yet she actively participated in her own. Um, her paintings were often untitled, but had subtitles like Untitled, Ordinary Happiness. But the best part of the book, I think, from its first pages onward, are not the resonances between you and Agnes Martin, but the contradictions. Um, the unlikeliness of her as a model in so many ways. And the most immediate difference being that your isolation or banishment is not really an act of solitude. It's with your husband and your dog. But I think it runs much deeper. Martin says, I believe in living above the line. Above the line is happiness and love. Below the line is all sadness and destruction and unhappiness. And I don't go below the line for anything. But I feel like you, for much of this book, are below the line and also below the waist. Whereas Martin says sex is just 15 minutes of physical abrasion, Contradiction Days is full of sex, of masturbation, of porn, of desire, of fantasy, of horniness. You say in the memoir that you're aiming to make pain into something abstract and oblique like Martin's paintings. But really the end result, at least for me as a reader, feels not abstract and oblique, but carnal, embodied, and direct. Um, in the review in the Washington Post, they call the book not well demarcated and gridded, uh, but messy, filled with rage, and unabashedly sexy which I think is one of the strengths and one of the enjoyments, this very weird juxtaposition of your, your inspiration by Martin and her life and your aspiration to, to enter that life in some way, but just the huge gap between Martin and you in, in so many ways. And I guess I wondered if you could speak into that contradiction for us. First, I'm just glad that you asked me to read that passage of all the passages one might read that display some carnality. For a long time, from being a very young person, like a kid on, I would imagine 
what it was would be like to be like another person. And I would like really want to be another person deeply. And often it would be like a different girl or a different woman. I really wanted to be that person. And that person would embody to me some kind of holistic perfection in appearance, in academic performance, in artistic pursuit, uh, or creative ability. And I don't find that this necessarily has gone away as I've, you know, aged. Um, maybe it's gone a little bit away. Anyhow, never have I aspired to be like someone so unlike myself than Agnes Martin. And I think that that is part of what gave me the courage to write about her. Uh, this sense that I could never, I could never do it right. I could never be her. The silliness of trying to match her project in and of itself, like I, I think it's very silly, like very, very silly. I am like currently standing here with my dog who features in the book. Like, <laughs> there's no way she was like, I was not going to touch my dog. Like, and Martin would never abide a pet, right? And so. Yeah, she, she said something like, artists shouldn't have pets, no, no friends, no. or lovers. It's just a distraction. Yeah. And, you know, we know she had lovers. Right. And, and friends. And friends. And yeah. I mean, I, maybe there aren't pets. So maybe she really stuck with the pets, but. She might've been friends with some of the bears <laughs> before she skinned them. Yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I think that gave me a lot of courage to, to sort of fall in love with her and fall in love with her as deeply as I needed to, to write about her. You, you mentioned like the carnality of the book or the sex in the book. And it's like, that was one of the only preserving parts of my life when I was pregnant was the fact that like, I realized, oh, like I'm not just a pregnant body. And so the idea that one would then renounce that seemed absurd to me, you know? And so like, Martin was useful in that Martin's difference rather Martin's difference for me was so useful because it allowed me to see, I think more clearly, like what I did and didn't aspire to in her um, and, and perhaps to be more critical. Um, yeah. I wish I had like a better sort of like, bum bum kind of <laughs> there. Um, the badum bump's good enough. <laughs> so, so thinking about the future, you've said that having a child has completely changed how you write, that you write closer to the body, closer to love and closer to positivity now. And you've also said, I did not expect that being depressed during pregnancy could lead to wellness. Mm. So I know you have a, a fourth book of, poetry coming out next year called Domesterexia. And I was wondering what you could tell us about it and if it reflects some of these shifts in yourself since motherhood that you described. 
No, not at all. Not at all? <laughs> not at all. It's <laughs> a totally, um, it's a totally bizarro Cornell box of pandemic isolation. Mm. Um, it's a book that sort of like, I think delights in unwinding the cuckoo clock a little bit. Like it's really kind of funky, I think. So it's not necessarily happiness or joy born. It's not necessarily conceived of in the deepest melancholy, like the way Martin wrote of Tundra, one of the last paintings she made before she left New York in 1967. But it's, it's a little more addled than some of the prose I think I've been writing. I think the prose that I've been writing, short stories, some essays that I've been working on about looking at art with my son, those are closer to that, that like love and positivity um, and joy. The prose I feel like has more, dare I say heart, and like flesh and blood to it. Yeah, I think, I think I'm also, I have another poetry manuscript that I'm working on that I haven't like figured out what's happening with yet, but that manuscript is, it's a book length poem that's about the speaker's long-term obsession with Andy Kaufman. That book isn't particularly bleak or dark, but it's still a little bit critical let's say, and maybe a little below the line, you know, maybe in poetry, I am a below the line more than I am in prose these days. Anyway, again, I think a poem is a good size for being below the line. Like it's a nice dose of below the lineness. Whereas a piece of prose, like, I don't know if I love to read a book of prose that's below the line. Maybe at one point I did, but not always these days. Like sometimes it's really quite difficult. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that's the sort of experience I want to create for readers with like a, a book length narrative. Yeah. Well, I look forward to all of those. Um, thank you for being on the show today, Joanna. Thank you for having me, David. We're talking today to Joanna Novak about her latest book, the memoir Contradiction Days, an artist on the verge of motherhood. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Joanna Novak's work at joannanovak.com. For the bonus audio archive, Novak contributes a reading of the book Mr. Rabbit and the Lovely Present, a weird and funny story illustrated some 60 years ago by Maurice Sendak. This joins supplemental readings by so many of our past guests, long-form interviews with translators, some craft talks, and more. And the bonus audio is only one possible benefit from joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm. 
of future guests. Every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation, things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards. From the 10 House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books that are selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers, or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning. <laughs>